The road is where my sin comes out probably the most because I am a proud man who wants to drive all roads by myself and have no other cars on them. And so when I come up to a detour, I really hate it. And I find them to be extremely frustrating because they can take you in unfamiliar directions and take you to places you didn't plan to go and even cause you to arrive late to your destination. But detours, as you know, don't only occur on highways, they also occur in our lives. And sometimes we're planning on heading in one direction and circumstances change drastically and they send us in a totally unexpected direction. Have you ever experienced a detour like that in your life? Regardless of the cause of our lives' detours, when we encounter them, our first reaction, your reaction may be similar to my reaction. Frustration, anger, confusion, feel like you're wasting your time, it's keeping you from your ultimate destination. But our text this morning takes us on a detour in Moses' life when he comes up to 40 years old. And he too was expecting a very different life than the one he just receives in these verses. The course of his life was altered by a very unwise and a very rash decision. And this detour in Moses' life was significant. It lasted him 40 years. One decision lasting 40 years. My guess is that during that lengthy detour, Moses must have felt like his life was an incredible waste. But actually, God used this detour to prepare Moses for his life. You know, the first few sermons that we've seen in the book of Exodus, and I promise we're going to pick up the pace a little bit. You might be discouraged. You might think we're at the end of chapter 2. This is four weeks. You know this is a 40-chapter book, don't you, Pastor Mark? Plan to be in this till Jesus comes back? No, we're going to pick up the pace a little bit. But the early chapters are important and foundational. And these early chapters have been marked by a growing promise, hopefulness. Have you noticed that as we've made our way through these few sermons? In spite of death, the death of the patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, in spite of those heroes dying, the people of God are growing. In spite of the oppression of Egyptian slavery, the people of God are multiplying. In spite of attempted genocide, the people of God are living. And then last week we saw that God's chosen deliverer, Moses, is miraculously spared from death and adopted into Pharaoh's own household. He is an object of God's special providential care and all the privileges of royalty that go with it. There's hope on the horizon. Aslan is on the move. But this morning... We pick up the story with a 40-year-old Moses. He's now grown up, and he's ready to step into his role. And I want you to see some of the characteristics of him. He's full of faith. Now, we don't see this immediately in Exodus 2. It doesn't talk about Moses' faith. But Hebrews 11 does. And Hebrews 11 is is describing what is motivating Moses in these verses. We read in Hebrews eleven twenty four through 26, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, 
choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. I wonder if we'd be able to do that. Think about that. That, That's a bad trade at one level. Here's a man who has the palace. Here's the man who has the royalty of Egypt. Here's the man who has all the riches he could ever want, every need met, and chooses to go be mistreated with the people of God. And when he looks back at Pharaoh's house and Pharaoh's blessings, he says, that's just fleeting. That's the pleasures of sin. What motivates him to do that? Well, Hebrews eleven twenty six tells us, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He's an amazing man. Moses is an amazing man, full of faith, counted the cost, paid the price, and is willing to do whatever it takes to obey God. He's also well-trained. Acts chapter 7, Stephen's speech in Acts 7 talks about Moses and gives us some insight into what's going on in Moses' life at this time. In Acts chapter 7, verse 21, Stephen tells us, Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He was mighty in his words and deeds. Now, what you want in a leader? Well-trained, well-equipped, well-educated, full of faith, mighty in word and deed. He's ready to rock the world. And he has a sense of responsibility, too. Again, Stephen in Acts chapter 7, verse 23 says, When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. So he has a growing identification with the people of Israel. He refers to them twice in verse 11 and then again in verse 12 as his people. Or sorry, twice in verse 11 as his people. And even though he himself is recognized by others as an Egyptian, he nevertheless is identifying with the Hebrews. He has an internal sense that he should save his people. So here's Moses, an object of God's special providential care, who enjoys great privileges and wealth, but yet who's now grown up at 40 years old, counted the cost, been equipped, identifying with his people, and is ready to save them. But he's not ready. While Moses was clearly a privileged man, like many men of privilege, he allowed his privilege to give birth to pride and self-sufficiency. This morning, we're going to see three steps in God's process for preparing Moses to lead the people of Israel by rooting out his self-sufficiency and his pride. So three steps. Here's the first one. Step one, professional failure. Professional failure. Look at verse 11 again. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. You can almost see Moses walking out to confront the bully, can't you? Cue the tumbleweed. He's going out. I can't whistle, so that's the best I can do. Verse 12, he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian, and he hit him in the sand. So he kills an Egyptian. Why? Because he's identified with the people of Israel. 
He obviously feels some degree of guilt about it and knows that something about this isn't quite right because he looks to his left, to his right, makes sure nobody's watching. And then after he does the deed, he hides him in the sand. This is not necessarily the actions of somebody who's stepping out into God's will. But notice, even though he stands up for the oppressed, he does it through oppression. Doesn't he? He stands up for those who are being beaten by beaten people. He stands up for those who are being oppressed by oppressing people. He stands up to do justice unjustly. He behaves like an unjust Egyptian slave master who kills an Egyptian the way the Egyptians are killing the Hebrews. He attempts to impose his own timetable and chooses to employ his own methods for liberating the Israelites. He's got no call of God to do this. He's got a, he's got a heart. He's got an inclination. He's got a burden. But he doesn't have a call. That doesn't come till the next chapter. So look at verse 13. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling, so he's done the deed. Now he sees his own people, and they're fighting. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? That's a good question. Not God. He doesn't have that role right now. Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. So he goes out the next day, and he's going to solve this problem too. He's already tried to solve the other problem his own way, kills the Egyptian for abusing the Hebrew. And then, Acts 7.25 says, he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. See, he seems to think that these Hebrews would agree that what he's doing is right, and they don't. It seems he thought that the Hebrews were just going to unify and follow his lead. And yet they're having none of that. Who made you a prince and judge over us? Why are you acting like you have any authority here? And so they don't listen to him. And verse 14 says, Do you mean to kill me, they say, as you killed the Egyptian? So he has discredited his leadership among the Hebrew people. You see what's happening there? By obeying, trying to do his own thing, apart from the call of God, he has lost credibility in the eyes of the Hebrew people, of the Israelites. They don't recognize him as any sort of king or judge or leader. They see him as a vigilante, as someone who goes and kills. And yet this too, this pushback that he's receiving for his actions is a foretaste of the pushback he's going to receive in his leadership his entire life. We're going to see it again and again in Exodus 6, Exodus 14, Exodus 16, Exodus 17, all convey this attitude among the Israelites toward Moses. So even when he is credited by God and called by God, he gets pushback. But he has no call here, and he is losing credibility. Acts 7.39, again Stephen commenting on this passage says, Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. 
So what happens as a result of all this? I mean, this is bad. This is bad. I mean, this is a fully pedigreed, ready-to-go Moses. He's at the prime of his life. He's stepping out. He's counted the cost. He's well-trained. He has a sense of responsibility. He's abandoned the privileges. He goes out. He fails epically. The people won't listen to him. The people won't recognize him. The people won't follow him. He's doing his own thing in reliance on his own wisdom. And now, verse 15, Pharaoh wants him dead. Verse 15, when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. This guy's done. He's defeated. It seems like the rug gets pulled right out from under him and right out from under God's plan. He fails, and he fails badly. What happened to this all-star pick? Moses was the first-round draft pick and throws an interception on his first down, all the while getting sacked and blowing out his ACL on his first snap. Hey, and I just used a sports illustration, and I think I used it correctly, and I'm not a huge sports fan, and every time I use a sports illustration correctly, an angel gets its wings... So, that just happened. He had such good intentions. Such good intentions. And blew it so badly. But brothers and sisters, what if I told you that failure is essential to God preparing your life, and especially the life of leaders? What if I told you that Moses' failure is actually God's plan for him? to teach him, to train him. He attempts to deliver God's people prematurely, devoid of a divine commission, and instead of relying on God's direction and God's power, he takes matters into his own hands, guided by his own zeal and his own ambition, doing things in his own strength, and it is a mercy of God to let us fail when we do that. It results in murder, guilt, opposition from his people, humiliation, threat of death, and an exile in the desert. He's failed. Or has he? This is how God always prepares his leaders. The people that God uses in the Bible are not superstars. Think of Noah. Delivers the world from a flood, gets drunk in a tent, passes out. The very next scene. Abraham. Called of God, leaves the land of his home to go sojourn wherever God's going to lead him. Lacks faith, struggles with faith. What's he going to do with Sarah? What's he going to do with Isaac? Jacob, one of his sons, becomes a liar. Or his grandson. Joseph was abused. Gideon was fearful. Samson was led away by lust. Rahab was a prostitute. Jeremiah and Timothy were way too young. David was an adulterer and a murderer. Elijah was borderline suicidal. Jonah was on the run and self-righteous. Naomi was a widow. Job went bankrupt. Peter denied Christ. The disciples fell asleep. Martha worried. The Samaritan woman was divorced. Zacchaeus was small. Lazarus was dead. Do I need to go on? 
all of God's leaders, all of God's people recorded in Scripture often have significant failure attached to them at some point. Failure is God's pathway to fruitfulness. It's hard. It's humiliating. No one wants it, but it's necessary. Michael Jordan, I'm going to use another quote, Angel Wings number two, coming up. Michael Jordan said, I have missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I have lost almost 300 games. On 26 occasions, I have been entrusted to take the game-winning shot, and I missed. I have failed over and over and over again in my life, and that is why I succeed. It's just true. Moses needed to experience the reality that he and we have no power in and of ourselves to accomplish the purposes of God. None. Giftedness and a solid pedigree in a leader are incredibly dangerous. And that's got to be rooted out. Because if it's not, it's harmful to the people of God. And harmful to the leader. Luke one fifty three says, He has filled, with hungry, filled up the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. So God will allow us in his mercy to fail often enough, obviously enough, painfully enough, to stay hungry and poor before him. What a mercy. What a mercy. Peter Enns, commentator on the book of Exodus, says, Would Moses have been adequately prepared for his ministry had he remained adorned in royal splendor? I think not. Rather, he is humbled by the Lord precisely so that he may be made into an instrument of deliverance. So that is step one, professional failure. And I just want to tag on a little thought here that caused me some conundrums. And I hope it can be like a little bit of a a Bible moment here where we can think about how to, to solve things like this. I want you to look again at verse 15, it says, when, Mo- when Pharaoh heard it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by the well. Now, what would you think was motivating him to flee? Well, he's scared, right? I mean, Pharaoh's after him. But I want you to look, hold your finger in Exodus 2, go to Hebrews 11. Because again, we have to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. Where other Scripture speaks to the event, we need to hear it, and then try to figure out what's going on. So Hebrews 11, I've read several verses from it this morning, but I want to read verse 27 to you about this. And it's speaking of this very event where Moses fled from Pharaoh. Look at Hebrews 11 and verse 27. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Now, just to be clear, some commentators think that verse is referring to the ultimate exodus when he delivers people out of, the, out of Pharaoh's bondage and the plagues are sent. And that, that very well could be the, the case. But Moses flees Egypt twice. He flees Egypt here and he flees Egypt when he ultimately leads the people out. We'll say more about that in a moment. But say it is referring to this, uh, this incident in, in 15, in chapter 2, verse 15 of Exodus. It says here that he left Egypt not being afraid of the anger of the king. So I'm encouraged in two ways by this. Let me just, let me just say this. Here, here's why I'm encouraged. 
If it's referring to the second exodus, which is where he actually leads the people out in chapters 9, 10, 11, when that's going on, then that means he learned a great lesson, right? He's not afraid of Pharaoh. Praise God, he's changed. God worked in him. That's a great lesson too. But say it's referring to, and I don't know if we can be absolutely sure, but say if it's referring to this account that we're talking about this morning, Exodus 2.15. Well, what do we make of that? It says he fled Pharaoh, but then here it says he wasn't afraid of him. Well, I think it's a beautiful illustration of what that faith can commingle with fear. Can it? I mean, has that not been your experience that sometimes fear is there and yet faith can be there too? Elizabeth Elliot said, sometimes fear does not subside and one must just choose to do it and be afraid. Faith is not the absence of fear. It's facing fear and trusting God even when you're scared to death. And I think God's people need to hear that because we do, well, if I'm afraid, I don't have any faith. Baloney. You're afraid if, if you, don't, you don't have any faith if you won't step into your fear. But you can be terrified and full of faith. So I think that's a lesson for us too. And either way, whether that passage is referring to the later exodus or this event right here, it's, it's immensely encouraging for us as God's people because fear either is mixed with faith or, fear is able, or faith is able to triumph over fear in the end. So that's, that's step one. Just wanted to add that in. No tip required. Step, chap, step two. So that's step one, professional failure. Step two in God's process for shaping this leader on this divine detour is personal formation. God's got some work to do in Moses first before he works through Moses. And that's always the way it is with his people. It's the way it is with you. God is more concerned and he will put your work for him on the back burner to do work in you first. Because he loves you more than what you do for him. You're way more important to him than what you do for him. And Moses is his son he loves him, and he's way more important than what he's going to do for the people of Israel. God cares about Moses and has to do some stuff in Moses first. As we saw last week at his birth, Moses experienced something of a personal exodus, didn't he? Pharaoh's daughter heard his cries, just like God heard the cries of his people, and took pity on him. And just as God did the Israelites... Just as Pharaoh's daughter took pity on Moses, so God took pity on his people. Moses' basket is taken from the reeds just as Israel will be rescued from the sea of reeds. Moses is drawn out of the water even as others are drowned just as Israel will later be while Pharaoh's armies are overcome. With his adoption by Pharaoh's daughter, Moses is immediately transferred from a slave to a son just as God's people will be. I mean, this is all a picture. He's experiencing a personal exodus at his birth, but he's also experiencing another personal exodus here at age 40. And then he's going to experience another one when he's 80, when he actually leads the people out. So notice God is concerned with building into Moses here and helping him to experience what he's going to later do, as the New Testament talks about so that we might be comforted by God, so that we might extend comfort to others with the comfort that we have received from God. That's what Moses is going through here. 
So this is another Exodus moment for Moses. Think about it. He's sent out of Egypt, and where is he going? Into the wilderness of Midian. He's leaving Egypt, and he's going into the wilderness. For how long? Forty years. That's not accidental. That's providential. God is leading Moses to experience his own exodus before he ever leads the Israelites to experience theirs. He takes action to deliver God's people, but he's sent out of Egypt for 40 years in the wilderness. Look at verse 16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. Think about it. He's being changed already. He encounters another abuse situation, another situation as oppression, and he doesn't kill anybody. Good job, Moses. Great job. Victory win. You did not kill anybody. That's progress. He helps a foreign people, particularly women, and he does so without violence. Moses stoops to serve, and by choosing to serve, he's learning to lead. Since all God's leaders are servants, and those who use force have no business leading in God's house. Notice also his placement in Midian by a well. That's not accidental either. Both Jacob and Moses flee from threat of physical harm to a foreign country, and both meet their wives by a well, and both return home with their future wives to meet their father. This is a very similar experience to what Jacob experienced. What's that teaching us? Well, Dwayne Garrett, commentator, says, the allusion to the episode with Jacob indicates that Moses is taking the place of Jacob as the new father of the nation. Just as Jacob led God's people into Egypt, Moses is going to lead them out. Jacob was responsible for getting them in that mess. At least Jacob's brothers, or Jacob's sons, who sold Joseph off into slavery, they were responsible for getting them into Egypt to begin with. And now Moses is going to lead them out, and he's following the pattern that Jacob experienced. Also, consider his appointment as a shepherd. He, he begins to, he encounters shepherds who came to drive these women away. And then in verse 18, which we'll get to in a moment, he is going to come home to the, the father of these women. And that you know what that home is? Ruel or Jethro is the father, and he's a shepherd. And Moses is going to spend 40 years in a shepherd's family, learning to be a shepherd. And then think about this. This is going to foreshadow how Moses will later defend the innocent Israelites against a false shepherd, namely Pharaoh, using his own shepherd's staff and then provide water in the wilderness for an entire nation. He provided water in the wilderness right here for a small family. He's going to provide it for God's family later on. This is how the Old Testament even thinks about Moses' leadership in a shepherd way. Consider Psalm 77, 20. God led his people like a flock by the hand of Moses. Isaiah 63, 11, Moses is referred to as the shepherd of the flock of Israel. 
Tim Chester says, One day Moses will lead Israel like a shepherd leading sheep. So he is prepared for that task by being a literal shepherd, leading literal sheep. Moses' actions are a sneak preview of the rescue God is about to accomplish. So what happens? Moses goes to the wilderness, and he lives an ordinary life as a shepherd for 40 years, having a family and having a son, and ultimately a second son, which we'll learn about later on. But let's read verse 18. When they came home to their father... Ruel, he said, how is it that you've come home so soon today? And they said, an Egyptian. They recognized Moses as an Egyptian. Delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him. They may eat bread. He's thinking, i got seven of these women. I need to find a man for one of them. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter to Sipporah. And then she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. So Moses is married, and he begins a family, which is essential preparation for leadership, the home. The name given to his son is Gershom, because it alludes to Moses' status as a foreign resident in Midian. While Moses had a sense that he was a Hebrew, and he ethnically identified with the Hebrews, Prior to this detour, he lacked any real sense of what it felt like to be an outcast, what it felt like to be a a foreigner, what it felt like to be a Hebrew. He was a Hebrew, but he grew up in privilege and power, which is way different from the experience of God's people. He knew nothing of the slavery and the suffering of his people, except in that brief episode as a baby, which he would have no doubt not remembered. But in Midian, he found himself in a strange land among people he did not know, looking, having to work for a living, very blue-collar. And there he got a taste of what it was like, and so he could more deeply empathize with the Hebrew people by experiencing his own exodus. But think about it. Moses doesn't view it quite this way. He sees himself essentially as a failure. He says in verse 22, naming Gershom, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. Moses is a failure as a citizen of Egypt and as the deliverer of his people. He's unwelcome in his birth nation. He can't go back because Pharaoh's hunting for him. And yet he feels like he's a failure even in his adopted nation. So he's hanging out in some far-off place with people who don't even know the true and living God. He's lost all position and prestige. He finds himself no longer the son of privilege in the cultural center of the world, and he's just a shepherd on the fringe of civilization. Mission failed, or has it? What often feels pointless, brothers and sisters, and ordinary in our lives becomes the object of God's providential shaping of our lives. God is not wasting any time with Moses. Moses didn't realize until much later that all that was transpiring in his life was preparing him for what God was going to call him to do. Leaving his family, identifying with God's people, fighting the Egyptians, dealing with insubordination and resistance, learning to live in the wilderness, saving people and providing water. This is all preparation for what God is going to do with him Later, It just doesn't feel like that to Moses like right now, and it doesn't feel like that to us either when we're going through it. 
it doesn't feel like anything but misery. Rosaria Butterfield says, Often people ask me to describe the lessons that I learned from my experiences before I came to Christ. I can't. It was too traumatic. Sometimes in crisis, we don't really learn lessons. Sometimes the result is simpler and more profound. Sometimes our character is just transformed. And that's what's going on with Moses. He's not going to walk away with any lessons here. Oh, yeah, I'm a shepherd because God's preparing me to be a shepherd. Oh, yeah, I'm supposed to identify with God's people. I'm clearly living my own personal exodus. I mean, I just left Egypt. I'm in the wilderness. I mean, this is what God's going to do with them. I mean, I get it, God. I get it. No, he doesn't, he doesn't know any of that. He doesn't know any of that. It's just traumatic. It's unsettling. And his character is being transformed. God says, Moses, I've got great things for you. I want to take you about 40 years to get it done, though. And then I'm going to take another 40 years to, lead, to use you to lead the people out of, out of Egypt, and then at the end you're not even going to get to go in. So before we get started on all this, let's go to the wilderness and you live there for about 40 years and then come and we'll talk about what you're going to do for me. The people whom God uses, brothers and sisters, please get this. The people whom God uses most are usually the ones that he puts in the wilderness first. We are first broken and then we are built up. God always works in us before and even as he works through us. He is not wasting our time. He's up to more than we know. He does not work on your timetable. He never will. It's too good for that. But if you belong to him, you can be sure that he is always, always, always working in you, on you, and through you. Always. Phil Riken says, God is never in any great hurry to prepare his servants to do his will, especially when he's got some great work for them to accomplish. We think so differently, don't we? We think if God's got something great for me to do, he's going to do it right now. No, he's not. No, he's not. If he's got something great for you to accomplish, he's in no hurry. Because it's not going to be, the great thing that he accomplishes through you is going to be because of him, not because of you. Someone has pointed out that Moses spent 40 years in Egypt learning something. And then he spent 40 years in the desert learning to be nothing. And then he spent 40 years leading God's people in the wilderness to prove God is everything. That should be the path of our life, isn't it? That's what it is before we come to Christ. We think we're something. We think we're becoming something. And then we realize, I'm nothing. And then God begins to humble us and weed pride out of us and make us dependent on him. And then at the end of our lives, we're just like, I made it. I'm glad I'm saved. I don't know how it happened. God is everything. God keeps his promises. That's the way every one of God's people ends their life. It's a miracle. I made it. I didn't abandon God. I don't know how. It, I, there were numerous opportunities, thousands of them. And he kept me. God is everything. We should embrace the attitude of John Wesley, and I'm sure Moses embraced this attitude eventually. John Wesley said, I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what your will is. Rank me with whom you will. 
put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be employed by you or laid aside by you, exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full, let me be empty, let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. Just gave it up. And that's a great place that Moses will eventually get from his time in the wilderness. So let me conclude here with step three quickly. Step one, professional failure. Step two, personal transformation or personal formation. And now let's look at step three, proper faith. Proper faith. See, Moses was at the same time zealous and foolish. Positively, he had identified with God's people and he forsook the power and prosperity in Egypt, but negatively he behaved impulsively and he committed a senseless and terrible crime. Violence of this kind was not how God was going to deliver Israel. Zechariah 4.6, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. It's not going to be by your might. It's not going to be by your power. It's going to be by God's spirit. The proper object of faith must be God. Human deliverance is in vain. God will use Moses, but Moses is not ultimate. God is. And that's what, now, you notice in verse 23, God steps forward. God has been in the background the entire book so far. He's working, but he's not showing himself. But here is the first mention of God. Because God is the proper object of Israel's faith and our faith, not, not Moses. It says in verse 23, During those many days the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Moses is in the wilderness. But their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Verse 24, And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. God saw the people and God knew. See, the proper object of our faith is God. James Boyce says, Surrounded by the world's ideals, even Christians tend to want to do God's work in the world's way through power, pressure, money. But the Christian's mode of operation is not by these things. We operate by the word, by prayer, by sacrificial love. In other words, we don't advance the kingdom by killing Egyptians personally. We need God to accomplish God's work. That's what Moses is learning. That's what God's people are learning. They need God. John 15, 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. No amount of talent, education, success, political savvy, business acumen, cultural influence. Unless God works, we labor in vain. It's worthless. It's a terrible form of discipline when God allows his people to do the right things without him. And he does. He will let you do it. Think about Matthew 16. You don't think he'll let you do it? Let me show you. I'll, tell, I'll show you how he'll let you do it. Matthew 16, Jesus and Peter. Peter, who do you say that I am? Well, you're the son of the living God. Peter, well done. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then Jesus paused. So we just, we got a spirit-empowered testimony 
of the reality of Jesus. The Holy Spirit was working on Peter and revealed to Peter who Jesus really was. Next verse. Jesus starts talking to Peter. Hey, I'm going to have to go be crucified, die, buried, but in three days I'll come back. Far be it from you. No way. Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking about the things of God, but you're thinking about the things of men. That's in the same moment. One moment, Peter is a powerful man empowered by the Holy Spirit, and the next moment, he's a tool of Satan. Brothers and sisters, the same thing will happen to you if you don't stay close to God. It's, we're so fickle. We're so fallible. We're so weak. We need God always. And now contrast the actions of Moses with the actions of the people. Moses took matters into his own hands, tried to free the people on their own. These, the people of Israel, they're having none of that. They are just groaning and crying out to God. That is the best place for God's people to be. Oh, it's the best place. Sooner or later, every believer ends up in a situation where the only thing they can do is just cry out to God. Just help me. When God is prepared to bless his people, he sets them to praying and crying out like this. This is the sign that God is getting ready to move. When people are saying, oh God, help us. You're our only hope. As long as we're going to rely on other things, we're going to forfeit the blessing of God. But if we will fall on our faces, God, God, God will bless us. This is a sign that God is working in the hearts of his people. And then we see God mentioned four times repeatedly in verses 24 and 25. It says God heard them. God remembered his covenant with Abraham that he would bless them and he would bring them out of the land of Egypt. God saw his people suffering and groaning, and God knew. It's a precious verb that this chapter ends with. God knew. It doesn't just mean he knew in some sort of intellectual way. Yeah, he knows all things. No, he knew it personally. This was occupying all of his attention. This was occupying all of his care and concern. Let me conclude with this, brothers and sisters. Does this passage not teach us that salvation is all of grace? Does it not? What, how do we get saved? We get saved the exact same way Israel got saved. How's that? Groaning under the weight of our oppression and sin, knowing that we were the ones who have done it. Now, that's different from Israel. Israel's was outward oppression. Ours is inward oppression. But it's real. And we are oppressed in our sin and we cry out to God to save us. And you know what he does? On the basis of his covenant, he hears us and he saves us. If you belong to God by faith in Jesus, you are part of the eternal covenant. And if we are in his covenant, God sees, God hears, and God knows you. And everything that God is doing in your life, as perplexing as it is, as confusing as it is, if you are God's child... You are the special object of his care and concern, and he is working in your life. He will never forsake you. He will never abandon you. You are not being punished for your sins. You may be being disciplined. You may be being refined, but God's not playing double jeopardy with you. 
He's not treating you according to your sins or repaying you according to your inequities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As, high, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. He remembers our frame that we are but dust. But he's working in you, dust though you are, for a good purpose. He's, even when he's silent, that doesn't mean he's absent. Moses could have thought that. The people of Israel could have thought that. Don't ever think that. God is active here. Even when he's behind the scenes, he is active. Praise his name. Let's pray together. <laughs> Father, thank you so much for this picture that we get in your word. It's convicting because we see ourselves in Moses. We know ourselves to be those who so quickly think that we know the right thing to do. So quickly think that we can do things in our own strength, in our own power. Live this life that you've called us to live in reliance upon ourselves. And we know that it's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by your spirit that we are able to live and do your will. We thank you for this pointer to the greater Moses Jesus who did not fail when he was in the wilderness, who never needed to be reprimanded for his sin because he was perfect. And the reprimands, the, 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 the punishment that fell upon him was deserved of us. And he stood in our place as an innocent, spotless lamb without blemish or defect. If any of us are here this morning who have never transferred our trust to Jesus, who are still looking to ourselves and all of our ingenuity and all of our ability to fix our own problems, help us to realize that we are the problem and that man cannot fix man's problems because man's problem is man. We will never be able to solve all that ills us apart from you because we are what ills us. Save us, God. Save us from ourselves. Save us from our sin. Save us because of our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing. Let's sing this again. Why should I feel discouraged? Why should I feel discouraged? Why should the shadows come? Why should my heart be lonely and long for heaven and home? When Jesus is my portion, yes, he is, my constant friend is he. His eye is on the sparrow. 